the fourth week uh, of a series that we're calling Heart Matters. And we're taking this uh, Advent season and this Christmas uh, to really look at what does Scripture say about our hearts. Uh, Because the culture has a lot to say about our hearts, uh, particularly around Christmas. Uh, And and we wanted to just really explore biblically what is our heart, uh, why does the Bible tell us to guard our hearts, and uh, just kind of look at what happens when we lose heart or do we have reason to not lose heart. And so we've been exploring these kind of questions over Christmas. And I want to give you a brief sort of uh, roadmap of where we've been. Uh, And then I want to tackle one of the most well-known passages of Scripture regarding our hearts and uh, try to free it of cliché and really begin to understand this passage. Uh, Where we were in the first week is we just really set the foundation by saying the heart is the center of all that we do. Uh, Culturally, the heart is our emotional center. And so we sort of live out our romantic lives from the heart. Uh, But when when you really need to make an important decision, you need to use uh, your logical center, your mind. And so we've really broken ourselves up into sort of our minds and our hearts and then our soul or our spirit, sort of that intuitive center of our lives. Uh, But really, this is not, the Bible knows nothing of this sort of separation between the parts of who we are. Instead, the Bible has one word for it. It's the word cardia, and it's translated into our English word for heart. In other words, biblically, the heart is the center of who we are. Everything that we do flows from our heart. And so I made the statement in the first week that if there's something about your life that you don't like, you have a heart condition. Uh, It's not just, in other words, Christianity and faith is not about behavioral modification. It's really about looking into our hearts and how can God begin to satisfy our hearts and change our hearts and shape our hearts and form our hearts. And and so uh, anytime that someone says you need to live more from your heart, it's really a misnomer and a misunderstanding because we can't help but live from our hearts. In week two, we we tackled the cliched um, passage of scripture out of Proverbs 4, verse 23, that says, uh, above all else, guard your heart, for everything that you do flows from it. And so we talked about what does it mean to guard your heart? Uh, Because guard your heart is something that uh, a lot of Christians will just sort of fly out there and, and say, but really they don't know what it means. And what we talked about is that for a long time, it just meant not having sex before you're married or teaching junior high girls to hate boys. That was guarding your heart. Um, And and so we have whole generations of girls that hate boys because they were guarding their heart. Uh, But in fact, what it is, is, it's not really building walls around your heart, but it's learning to pray over your heart. Because God promises to guard our hearts for us. In other words, we, we took this passage, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. But then later on, Paul says, in, in, when he's talking about prayer, he says, with everything by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And guess what? When we do that, the peace of God will guard our hearts. And so we really said that that, that what we need to do is not pray for our situation to change. We don't need to pray for for greater willpower necessarily. Those things aren't bad. But what we really need is to pray for our hearts. We need to ask for our hearts to be changed. And that's really what guarding our heart is. And then last week we talked about how life is sometimes just really hard. And it gives us and presents to us circumstances that would cause us to lose heart. And again, we looked at the Apostle Paul, who uh, had, had all kinds of reasons to lose heart in ministry. And we kind of looked at, at his Facebook status update that was, that was like all the difficult things that were going on in his life, you know. 
uh, which, by the way, you may not know this, but there's studies going on, uh, sociological studies going on, trying to capture and measure the happiness of our culture based on the collective Facebook status updates. Uh, and, and so what they're finding out is where are the happiest people, where do they live, uh, just based on status updates. So be careful what you update, because someone is watching and they're studying it. Um, but, but anyway, what we looked at is that the Apostle Paul, what he tells us is that in the darkest moments of our lives, those darkest moments, those times where you never feel like you're going to get one foot in front of the other, you're never going to get over the, the mountain, you're never going to make it to the next day, in those darkest moments of our lives, Paul says that is just like joining Christ in his death so that we can also join Christ in his resurrection. In other words, if you're experiencing a really dark moment in your life today, this week, or maybe it's coming and you don't know it, what you need to know is in those dark moments, those hold the greatest potential for resurrection life. Those hold the greatest potential for new life in Christ in those really difficult moments. And so ultimately what Paul said is, because of this truth, we do not lose heart. In other words, in Christ, we have a tremendous hope that in the midst of, of circumstances that would cause people to, to, to write you off and say you've lost hope, you've lost heart, Paul says, because of the great hope we have in Christ, we do not lose heart. That's where we've been so far. I hope you've enjoyed the series. It's been challenging to me. It's been working on my own heart. Um, but today I want to tackle another uh, really well-known uh, passage of scripture about the heart and uh, try to unpack it a little bit. And that is uh, Psalm 37, verse 4. Psalm 37, verse 4. Just one verse of scripture this morning. Psalm 37, verse 4, uh, which says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Des delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray and ask for God's wisdom and understanding over our time together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to come together and open your word and, and sing uh, songs that proclaim the truth of Christmas and just recenter our hearts on what this season is all about. And, and Lord, we're thankful for, for kids uh, and their love for you and uh, just their joy in singing. And, and God, we, are, we have been so blessed already this morning. But I pray that as a result of, of opening your word together, that you would, um, that you would stir in our hearts, uh, that you would move us, uh, that we would be challenged and encouraged at the very same time. And, and God, I pray that uh, as I do my best to communicate clearly, that you would translate my words into exactly and precisely what each person needs to hear, and that they would each have an encounter. Each one of us would have an encounter with you today, Lord. And so we thank you for this opportunity. Be with us as we open your word together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, as with many other Christian cliches and popular passages, this, this passage of scripture has a lot of baggage and has a lot of misunderstanding. A typical understanding of this, right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The way that this is typically taught, the way this is typically seen in a lot of circles is this. Delight yourself in the Lord. Give God props in your life. Like, like just show God, like, like, like just, uh, 
you know, just, just uh, give him a thumbs up every now and then. Like, like, just give him certain attention in your life. Delight yourself in the Lord. Go to church. Pray every once in a while. You know, you don't have to pray when things are going well. You just need to pray when things are going bad. And as long as you do that, you're giving God props. You're delighting yourself in the Lord. Go to church every now and then. And then, man, if you, while you're in church, you might as well just throw a little something in the plate. That's always helpful. You know, give God props. Delight yourself in the Lord. And then guess what? He is going to give you the desires of your heart. And so it's like, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. You mean all I got to do is go to church, throw a little something in the plate, uh, tip the church, not tithe, but tip, and then, and then just pray every now and then, and then God's going to give me what I want? Hold on, this thing's not so bad after all, you know? And that's how a lot of times this passage is seen. That if I just give God props, then he is therefore obligated, based on this formula, to give me what I want. And uh, not only is that not what this passage is saying, but to treat it that way is actually mistreating the passage altogether. Because if, if we see this passage in this way, delight yourself in the Lord, give God props, and then he's therefore obligated to give you what you want, it's just that easy. If we see it in that way, then guess what? This is treating God as though he were a cosmic Santa Claus. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I love having the kids here, man. It's so good. It's so good. Some of you are, you guys are all scared to say amen and do it or even like flinch during the sermon, but they're not. And I like that. Maybe that's right. That's right. We all need to, to capture our kid at heart and participate. See, like, like if we just feel like we can sort of manipulate God based on a formula, then, then we're treating God as though he is some sort of Santa Claus. That as long as I'm on the, the nice column and I avoid the, the naughty column, then he's going to bring me something real nice for Christmas, you know? And, 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 or maybe, maybe, that, maybe that doesn't make sense to you or maybe that doesn't connect with you. Uh, if we do this, then we're really treating God as a vending machine. That if I just put in enough quarters of attendance, if I just put in enough literal quarters, and if I just put in enough quarters into the God machine, then he's going to spit out whatever I want. And, and a lot of times we see this passage in this way. But let me tell you, if you're trying to delight in the Lord so that he'll give you what you want or so that he'll be your vending machine or you're trying to delight yourself in the Lord so that he'll be your cosmic Santa Claus, then guess what? You're not delighting in him. You're delighting in what he can get you. Oh, it got real serious too soon in the sermon, didn't it? It was like, oh man, I thought this was supposed to be like a nice Christmas sermon. I I didn't expect this. John Piper says in his book, Desiring God, and this is a paraphrase, he says, we love God not as a means to an end, but as an end in himself. And so I want to give you an alternative way of understanding this passage of scripture that I think is going to change a lot of things for us this morning. This passage is not saying something, this passage is saying something much more profound than how do we sort of get God in our corner so that we can get what we want. The Hebrew word for forgive uh, is the word nathan. Nathan. And it literally means to bestow or to put upon. 
In, in other words, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he bestows upon us the desires of our hearts. Or let me say it to you this way. He authors our desires. Delight yourself in the Lord and and he will become the author of that which you desire. Now that's totally different. Right? Because one, the intended end is I'm going to use God as a means to get what I want. The other one is talking about this, this intimacy and this connection and this coming together all of a sudden of what I want and what God wants. So all of a sudden there's not something different. They're not, they're not two different things, but all of a sudden they're the same. That's what this passage is talking about. Is the ultimate alignment of my desires and God's desires. In other words, let me say it to you this way. It isn't God it isn't that God is going to grant me the thing that meets or satisfies my desires. It's that God is going to give me the desire itself. Are you with me? Now, now that I've already given you the punchline, uh, let me unpack it a little bit. Uh, the word delight here speaks of, of taking exquisite delight in something or someone. Uh, It's actually sort of a soft, nice, dainty little word in the Hebrew. Uh, And so it's it's sort of like, it's fluffy and warm, you know? Uh, And so in this series, uh, we have talked about, and I've asked us to really reflect on, what does our heart ultimately value? Or what does your heart ultimately love? What is it that drives you? What is it that gives you purpose? What is it that, that gets you up in the morning that you are trying to achieve or accomplish or get done or earn and all of these things? Some of the examples that I've learned or, or that I've been using throughout this, this series is for many of us, the ultimate love and desire of our heart is accomplishment. What gets us up in the morning is a need to feel like I have actually done something. I've actually contributed to the world. Uh, As Steve Jobs said, I have made my dent in the universe, right? That's all I want to do. I just want to get out there and accomplish something. And and, and for many of us, that's the primary love of our heart is just accomplishment. I want to get out there and do something. Uh, For many of us, it's it's sort of the, the, it's very, it's similar, but it's different. And that is productivity, uh, and, and this is really popular in our culture that, that man, what, what, don't we love productivity, right? What's the first thing that we ask somebody when we meet them? What do you do for a living? What do you do for a job? In other words, that's code for how are you productive, right? And, and if it's like, oh, you're just a stay-at-home mom, you don't earn a paycheck. And all of a sudden in our culture, it's sort of like there's this, this looking down upon someone because they're not productive. And so for many of us, the ultimate love and desire of our heart is productive or productivity. Some of us desire above all acceptance and in our whole lives, because we're living from our heart, if the ultimate love of our heart is acceptance, then our whole lives are driven by the need to be accepted. I'm going to do things that will make me accepted. I'm going to, I'm going to change myself in order to be accepted. I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can just to be liked by somebody, it doesn't matter who. I just want to belong, right? Other things is recognition or, or proving my worthiness. 
And the reality is, is these delights can be met in any number of ways. Many of these sort of pursuits can be met through career advancement, the accumulation of wealth. Uh, some of these things can be met through uh, certain kinds of sexual experiences or experimentation or, or, or whatever it is. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's feeding this thing that my heart ultimately desires and loves. And what I have challenged us to do is that all of those desires can be met and satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. In other words, Christ has, has proven already that you are accepted. Christ has shown that you are worthy of even the greatest sacrifice. Christ has shown you the ultimate recognition by providing you your salvation and your rescue. Uh, God, Christ answers our desire for productivity that, by reminding us that the world goes on if we take a rest. Right? Some of you, that, that, that your ultimate value in love is productivity. You just always got to stay busy. You got to stay busy. And, and the Lord says there's a, uh, there's a rhythm and there's a pattern. And we need to recognize Sabbath time in our life. And listen, if, you're, if, you're, if your heart's ultimate love and desire and delight is productivity, you're going to be pretty terrible at Sabbath. Because what happens if I take a break and God just wants to, Christ wants to, to whisper over your life, I've got things under control, take a break, and the world will go on, right? And so it doesn't matter what the ultimate desire of our heart is, it is met and it is answered in Christ. And so the psalmist tells us to place our delight, our joy, our love, our value, ultimately in Christ, and the fact is, saying that this is, in fact, not saying that God is some sort of vending machine or Santa Claus, or we can get God in our corner and then manipulate him based on a formula, but this is, in fact, saying that God needs to become the ultimate, our ultimate pleasure, our, our ultimate delight. But this still begs the question, and this is where I want to spend our time today. This still begs the question, how do I make this a reality in my life? Like, practically speaking, what do I go and do tomorrow morning that will help make Christ the delight of my heart? I mean, that's really the question. Do I need to learn more truth about Christ and put all of that information into my information kettle called my brain? Do I need someone just to pour more truth into my brain? Is that what, is that, do I need more information about Christ? Well, certainly truth about Christ and knowledge of who Christ is is never a bad thing, but, but a lot of times knowledge just sort of sits here, right? Uh, it, it just sort of lives in our head and it never moves to what? Our cardia, our heart, the center of who we are. And so I don't, I don't think that necessarily just, uh, a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, a, a colleague, a friend, just pouring more information into your mind about Christ is really how you make Christ the delight of your life. Okay, well then I know what it is. I simply just need to, to, uh, to, to bolster up my faith through greater belief. I need, to, I need to believe more. Well, maybe, but the difference between just knowing uh, more things about Christ and belief in Christ is really sometimes hard to discern, right? Um, because the way that belief is, is taught in our culture a lot of times is, is that is, is, is just if I believe something, then I'm just agreeing to a particular set of facts that, 
that in fact this is true about Christ, therefore I believe it. And so a lot of times the line between true belief and, and actual facts is really thin. And so if, if I just say, well, I need more truth about Christ, that'll make him the desire and delight of my heart. Or maybe I just need to bolster up my faith through greater belief. Then oftentimes our road to greater belief is just more information. So we're back to square one. Are you with me? And I would want to say that maybe the answer does not lie in your head, but maybe the answer lies in your heart. That in fact, the way to make Christ the delight of your heart is actually through your heart itself. I want you to consider that as human beings created in the image of God, that we are not fundamentally thinking beings. Nor are we fundamentally just believing beings. But at the core of who we are, at the center of our heart, our cardia, we are beings who love. Love is ultimately what drives us, what moves us, what shapes us. Well, some of you are like, well, how can that be true? I mean, Pastor Andy, haven't you watched the news lately, right? I mean, there's hate going everywhere. How can we be driven by love when there's so much hate in our world and in our culture? And and, and so our world is so full of hate. Well, Well, sin does not churn off our ability or our need to love. Sin just redirects it into all the wrong directions. And so what happens is that hate is the equal but opposite emotion directed toward those who don't love the same thing we do. I hope you heard that. I mean, if we're really driven by love, how can we be in a world and a culture so full of hate? Because hate is the equal but opposite emotion that is directed toward those who don't love the same things we do. And all you have to do is is read the news about the motivations for the mass shootings, and you say, really? That happened? And you're going to go shoot a bunch of people up? Or all you have to do is read the reactions to Duck Dynasty. And you're like, there are real problems in the world, and we're doing this on Facebook, right? And, And it's just like, there is slander going in every direction. And why is that? Well, It's because we've identified people who maybe love something or someone or an ideal that is different than ours. And the way that is then expressed is hate because we're driven by love. Does that make sense? Let me say it to you this way. So, so, well, well, even, uh, let me say this to, to close that thought out. Even our hate is connected to our love. Let me say it to you this way. We don't think, you don't think your way through life. We live and we are moved, not by facts, but by story, right? Someone gives you a sheet of bullet points of the plot of a book or a narrative that you love, you aren't moved. You read the book, though, or you watch the movie, and you have all this sort of emotional response. If we were just thinking things, Hollywood wouldn't exist. We'd just get bullet points of narratives, this happened, then that happened, and then they threw the ring in the fire. Awesome. <laughs> you know? Uh, which is sort of like, like 
Can I tell you a quick story? Amy and I have been married 12 years. We got married the year that the first one came out, The Fellowship of the Ring. We knew nothing of it. I had never heard of J.R.R. Tolkien. I had never read any of the books. I didn't know it was a trilogy. We just heard this movie was awesome. So on our honeymoon, we go to the movie. Three hours later, they hadn't thrown the ring in the pit, and we were ticked. <laughs> right? Because we had no idea it was a trilogy. And so we wanted the bullet point, you know? But if we were just primarily thinking beings, we wouldn't be so captured by movies and narratives and all of these things. In other words, our imaginations come alive, not when hearing a dissertation, but when we see images that connect with us at the deepest level of who we are in our hearts. If you have ever seen the film Crash, it's an older movie, uh, several years old, but uh, I remember that movie capturing me uh, in a very profound way because it's a movie about racism. And... Uh, that film uh, grabs your heart and your imagination in ways that a textbook on racism never could. Because we're not primarily thinking beings. We are primarily driven by, guess what, our cardia. Because what? The Bible holds all truth and all of life flows from our hearts. And so it's a powerful movie about how we see those who are different from us. As beings who are primarily driven by love, we are constantly being shaped and moved toward what we love. In other words, let me say it this way. Whatever it is that holds the primary seat of desire and delight in your heart, you are constantly being driven toward that thing. Whatever it is, whomever it is, you're constantly being driven to that thing. Because our actions always have a direction. Nothing that we do is in vain. Nothing that we do is just sort of, ah, ha, ha, no, I don't even know what I'm doing. Everything always has a direction. And we're always moving toward that which we love. And the world is a training center for your heart. Did you know this? That everything you read, everything you watch, everything you participate in, every habit that you have is a training center for your heart. It is forming and shaping your heart. And what it does is in your heart, you have a picture of the good life. Whatever you perceive as being the good life is what you are constantly being driven toward and what you're acting toward because of this love that is being shaped in your heart. Let me give you an example. I want you to consider one of the most popular worship centers of modern America. Every weekend, thousands of worshipers will congregate in this place. And regardless of what town you go to, you can find a worship center there. With its sprawling parking lots uh, to accommodate all of the worshipers. And then when you look at the, a little bit closer, you notice that the worship center has no windows except for the ceilings that are made of glass to give people a sense of openness and space, yet at the very same time being closed in and safe. Once you enter into the worship center, there's a foyer to welcome you to this sacred space. And there's a map that will help you navigate your way around and help you know where to go. You get a sense as soon as you walk in that this is a place where time stands still. And as you make your way through the halls, you notice there are all kinds of different chapels, each one promising you something new to feed your appetite for worship. At the center of the building is the sanctuary. This is where all the people tend to gather. 
And one thing is very profound about this place. You are certainly free to be yourself. No one is there judging you. No one's there looking down upon you. And so you're free to be yourself, but every image around you seems to be trying to tell you that you need to be someone else. And so on one hand, you're free to be yourself, but on the other hand, everything is trying to tell you to be something else. And in fact, that is perhaps why all the people have gathered there in the first place, to grab a taste of a different kind of life and to inch toward the sort of life that they want. And what I'm talking about is not a church, but the shopping mall. Never saw that coming, did you? You see, our liturgies of shopping, in our liturgies of shopping, we are being trained of what we are to love. And the things that are training us are the small and flawless figures in the window that display all of the latest fashions. And all the messages on the billboards and the marketing posters are teaching us to delight in that fashion and in that particular kind of body type because that fashion and that body type promises us us popularity and a positive self-image. Because when you look that good, how could you not be popular and how could you not like yourself? You see, what I want to tell you today is that when looking at how God becomes the delight of our heart, we are formed and fashioned, and our vision and the delight of our heart is shaped by our practices, primarily. It is what we do that shapes our hearts. Are you with me? Last year for my birthday, Amy got me a Bose SoundLink speaker. It's a Bluetooth portable speaker uh, that connects to your mobile device. I want to be uh, politically correct for all of you Android users. <laughs> it connects to your mobile device. You play music, and instead of hearing the uh, music from a tin can from your phone uh, that sounds like it's in a tin can, you hear uh, a room-filling, Bose-sounding, beautiful Music, and I love it, and I use it all the time, and uh, I, I love it, and I'm happy with it, and it's over a year old, and then I went to Best Buy. I should have I known better, and I didn't go to Best Buy for any particular reason. I, I wasn't there to, to uh, shop for anyone or anything in particular. I just had some free time. I thought, I haven't been to Best Buy in months. I'll go and see and just hang out for a little while, a few minutes, 10 or 15 minutes. I go to Best Buy, and I realize uh, that, that Bose has come out now with a Wi-Fi speaker system that connects to your home Wi-Fi and has multiple speakers so that when you play music over your Wi-Fi connection, it fills your whole house with sound. And music. And, and, and music is the, the lifeblood of our lives, is it not? Right? And so, so I went from being perfectly happy with my vision of the good life, my little Bose SoundLink speaker. And then I practiced going, or did action, right? Going to Best Buy. And all of a sudden, my vision of what good music in my home sounded like changed. And my little Bose SoundLink speaker seemed all of a sudden so puny. The point that I want to make to you is that our practices, our actions, are what shape 
the delight of our heart. And this is a totally different way of looking at it. Because what we typically do, stick with me. I know this is deep stuff. But stick with me. Typically what we do is we have a vision of the kind of life that we want to have, right? And we start with that vision. It's way out there. And I'm way over here, right? And and the gap between me and the 40 pounds that I want to lose is so huge. And I think there's the vision of where I want to be. And now I need to come up with all the steps in order to get there. That's what we typically do. But I want to flip that on its head and say that biblically, the way in which we shape the vision of our lives is not by just having a sort of a a, a vision out there of something and I don't know how to get there, but rather begin practicing that vision right here and right now. And allowing those practices and those habits and those liturgies. Liturgy means the work of the people. Those liturgies to shape my vision for the life. What I'm telling you is this. That if we want Christ to be the center of our desire, and if we want to truly delight in him, we must participate in Christian practice. For these practices will shape our hearts to delight in Christ. Because the world is a training center for your heart. Allow the church to be that same training center. Let me, let me tell you how this works out in all of our lives, then let me uh, bring it down to uh, actual Christian practices. If you're trying to lose weight, but your regular practice is to go to Chick-fil-A, I won't ask for a raise of hands. The buttered bun, waffle fries, and sweet tea will certainly shape your vision of the good life, but it doesn't include giving that kind of stuff up. If you were for a few moments to be disciplined and start eating carrots and fruits and veggies, what will happen is that pretty soon the carrots shape your vision of the good life and, how, and what a healthy lifestyle looks like. Because you can't have a vision to lose weight and keep participating in the practice of going to Chick-fil-A. Because the practice of going to Chick-fil-A is shaping your vision of the good life. And the good life is peppermint chocolate chip milkshakes. Right? Amen. That's right. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't ever have one of those milkshakes. But if you have this regular kind of practice, let me, let me tell you, um, let me be real personal with you for a moment to, to show you how this also plays out. If I, as a leader, a Christian leader, watch podcasts and follow famous megachurch pastors on Twitter and Facebook and all the social media, pretty soon the vision of leadership that is formed and shaped in my heart is that we need to be the next megachurch and that I need to be the next megachurch pastor. If I have a regular practice of, of doing that, that's the vision that is shaped in my heart. But if I have a regular practice of following small church communities who are being true to the vision that God has given them, and, and their pastors, no one, nobody would know from anybody else, but they're living life faithfully as a leader and as a shepherd of that community, then all of a the sudden... I, the, the vision 
for my own life of leadership and for our community is shaped to be just obedient to what God has called us to do. No pressure, no box, no expectations of becoming a certain kind of thing or we do this thing on Sunday mornings or that or this or whatever. It becomes church based on forming a community that's obedient to God and, and, and planning services that are intentional versus just doing things to draw people in at all costs. Are you with me? The vision is shaped by the practice. And so what I want to encourage you to do is look again at this passage. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord. That is an action, delighting. Delight yourself in the Lord, action. And he will then give you, bestow upon you, or author the desires, the love of your heart, which is the deepest part of who you are. I think for too long we've been focused on having this vision of the kind of Christian I want to be and wondering how we're ever going to get there. Or maybe we look at someone else in the church and we say, you know, that person is a saint. How in the world did they get there? They got there by faithfully participating in the practices of the faith. And what that ultimately did was it shaped their heart so that the temptations of culture, the temptations of the world, all of a sudden weren't so strong. They're still there. Don't be ignorant that they're just going to go away. All the temptations are just the same, but their heart has been shaped. And so I want to encourage you, church. Now, this is a very simple bottom line, and we took a while to get there, but I wanted you to understand why I'm telling you these things. What I want you to do, church, in the new year, or beginning this week, is I want you to read your Bible even when it seems dry. Even when your Bible reading plan has you in Numbers and Leviticus. Because what you don't know is that while, you're, while, the, while no words jumped off the page, while you didn't feel this warm, fuzzy in your heart, while the Holy Spirit didn't, you know, j- didn't feel like you just like saw an angel in the corner of the room, you know, like, like nothing spectacular happened, but in reading, your heart was shaped to delight more in Christ, to delight more in him. I want you to pray even when you don't know how to utter a word. And I've been there. I've been in situations and in circumstances in my life where I either didn't know how to pray, or I didn't have the courage to pray, or I didn't know what to pray for. I mean, I was broken. And we had faithful people praying for us, and that's good and that's great. But even if the all you can utter is God, why, or how, or what are you doing, you just need to pray and pray and pray. Utter a word. Pray for your heart. I mean, if you, if you don't even know, if you just seems like the circumstance will never change and can't change, and maybe you're in a place in your faith where you don't believe that God has the power to change it, then start praying for your heart. Because when we, when we pray and when we commune with God, our hearts are being shaped and formed and all of these good things. Now listen, the other thing I want to encourage you to do is to enter into the rhythms of the Christian calendar For there are seasons that come with certain practices that shape our vision for life in the kingdom. And and being aware of the Christian calendar is a way to organize the rhythms of our own life around the life of Christ. And guess what? In Advent, this is when the, the church 
all around the world and for centuries has centered the rhythms of our life around the rhythms of the life of Christ himself. And so in Advent, we have this season of expectation and waiting. The Advent is not primarily about looking back and saying with joy, Christ has come. But Advent is also and more about looking and waiting with expectation about that Christ will come again. It's about remembering that Israel, the nation of Israel that God had formed, waited and waited and waited with patient expectation for the arrival of the Messiah. And he has come to us in a baby. And now we get to wait again as a church and as a community for God to come again. In his second coming, Advent is about waiting. And so when you are waiting for a parking spot, when you are waiting in line, when you are impatient because of all the Christmas holiday stuff and there's too many people around, it gives you an opportunity to say, God, I am doing right now in this moment in Target what you have intended for my heart to do. And that is to wait on you in hopeful expectation. I just told you how to make your trip to Target religious (laughs) and meaningful. And then, so Advent is all the time leading up to Christmas. Then we get to Christmas. Christmas is not a single morning. Christmas is a 12-day of celebration. You mean the 12 days of Christmas? Yeah, it wasn't a song first. It was a truth of of Christianity and faith. And, And so Christmas begins on Christmas morning, goes the next 12 days. It's a celebration of the word made flesh, of the kingdom of God, of peace and giving and generosity. And then not soon after that, we enter the season of Lent, which is 40 weekdays leading up to Easter to remember. It's a time where we remember our sinfulness and our need for a savior and our own mortality that we were made from dust and to dust we will return. But we remember all of that so that we can properly celebrate at Easter. And Easter isn't just a single morning. Easter is a a 50-day celebration of new life in Christ. It's the longest period of the Christian calendar. Your new life in Christ, your resurrection. You've joined him in the valley. You've joined him in his death. You've walked through all the difficult of life, and then you enter and you this rhythm, this season of Easter that says, In Christ I have been resurrected, both metaphorically right now, and then at the end, I experience a, a new and actual and physical bodily resurrection. And then after Easter is Pentecost, which is the outpouring of the Spirit of God to guide us and empower us. It's the birth of the church, it's a celebration of the power and from the Spirit, and, and it's uh, from the Spirit to, to go into the world and serve the world and be a witness to the world as the church. That's the Christian calendar in two minutes, maybe three. And if we can enter into those seasons and, 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 and align the rhythms of our life with the rhythms of the right life of Christ and do the practices that come along with it, then guess what? All of a sudden, our hearts are shaped to desire Christ. These practices shape our hearts and form our imaginations so that what we desire more than anything is God himself and his kingdom. May that be true of our lives. And then let me also say this. It's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. 
And sometimes you'll enter into seasons where you feel like you're just, you're going along and you are just doing great with all of this. And then there'll be something that'll steal part of your heart. There'll be a joy or delight that's not aligned with Christ that'll sneak in and you need to just get right back on track. Get right back on track because it's a lifelong process. And so the Christian faith is not one of guilt if you fall off, if you, if you mess up. That's not what it's about. It's about the goodness that God has allowed us to just get right back where we stepped off. I mean, you stepped off, you messed up, you did this, you, you were tempted, you, 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 you gave in to that temptation, whatever it is, and you just get right back on through practices of the Christian faith. And so church, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.